Welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, listen local, think global. This is our third season bringing you the literary life from off the beaten path. I am your host, Tannis McDonald. The founder of Watershed Writers is the multi-talented Francis Roberts Riley, who serves as the show's producer and the person who keeps the wheels on the bus. We are very happy to be partnered with Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo, where Matt Rapolt makes sure our stories make it to the air. And this is the final episode of season three, and it is an episode in which we take a deep dive into historical writing, searching archives, and making public stories of Black history on a local and an international level. Our guest is Peggy Plett, the historian, biographer, and the leader of a local walking tour called Black Presence in Berlin that Peggy developed with Juanita Metzger of Stroll Walking Tours. It's a tour that is being offered in Kitchener throughout the summer and the fall. At a time when Rosa Parks is being edited out of American history as it will be taught to Florida children, it is more timely than ever to remind ourselves that history is not a single narrative, but many narratives woven together. Peggy's research is echoed in the work of Black writers and scholars all over Canada who unearth Black histories and bring them back to the public light. This work is ongoing, and it is precise. I think of Karina Vernon's work on stories of the Black prairies from the 19th century to the 21st, including Ezia Dudgeon's novel The Second Life of Samuel Tyne, set in the historic Black community of Amber Valley, Alberta. Lawrence Hill's novel, Any Known Blood, features black presence in Oakville, Ontario. And Wade Compton and Shalene Knight both work on the black neighborhood of Hogan's Alley in Vancouver. Afua Cooper examines the life and death of Marie-Joseph Angelique in 18th century Montreal. Many scholars in Atlantic Canada have written about the bulldozing of Africville a 150-year-old black community located by Halifax Harbor. And I think, too, of James Russell, the journalist who, in the last few days, has chained himself to a historical sign in a Niagara-on-the-Lake cemetery to call for the restoration of multiple gravesites of 19th-century black settlers. I think about the black settlements of Wallenstein and Hawksville in the Grand River watershed, just northeast of Waterloo, in the area once known as the Queen's Bush, a terminus of the Underground Railway located on the banks of the Conestoga River. I had lived in Waterloo County for nearly a decade before I saw anything written about those historic black farming settlements. Why so hard to come by? My respect to Jeff Martin for writing that article that I read in the New Quarterly. 
And now it's time for Peggy Plett's official biography. Peggy was born in Suriname. She lived in the Netherlands for three decades and came to North America as a Fulbright scholar in history. She moved to the Grand River region in 2007 and now considers Canada her home. Her research into her own past has shown that she is a descendant of enslaved Africans and she's in the third generation born after emancipation. Peggy has been studying black history as a researcher for almost 30 years, examining the big questions like why are narratives constructed the way they are? What are the stories we are telling ourselves about the past? And whose stories get archived? And who determines these archives? Peggy does a great deal of community work, and she has said that knowing her own history allows her to live her life with purpose. So Peggy and I have a lot to talk about, including her biography of the American Surinamese inventor, Jan Ernst Matzeliger, who revolutionized the footwear industry in the 19th century, but about whom no biography had been written until Peggy came along and wanted answers. We will talk about uncovering family history, curiosity as a motivator, the pleasures and surprises of archival work, and her new project, researching the life of Levi Carroll, a black man and escaped enslaved person, and someone who arrived in Berlin, Ontario in 1806. Welcome, Peggy, to Watershed Writers. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you here, and we are going to cover a number of ways that we're going to be talking about writing today, but we're going to start kind of conventionally, traditionally, with this book that you've published about a man who is famous on the one hand and not that famous on the other, and you did some work in your, uh, your work as a historian on Jan Ernst Matzeliger uh, and his biography. He's an inventor, and there's a, a pun in the title of your book, Jan Ernst Matzeliger, A Lasting Invention. Now, can you uh, say why you titled it A Lasting Invention? <laughs> because I, as I said, I, I think there's a pun there and I want to talk about it. There is a pun, that's right. The pun comes from the fact that his invention is still relevant. And I'll give you an example. Just last month, a shoe factory, a Black-owned shoe factory opened in New Hampshire. It's called JAMS, which stands for John Ernst Metzeliger Studios. And so this is the first Black-owned shoe factory in the United States. And these folks are thrilled, they're excited about what they're going to accomplish. And so it is Gems by Pencil. It just started, and I am thrilled to see what they're going to accomplish. They're working together with designer warehouse shoes, DSW, I think that's uh, what it stands for. And so a lot of exciting things happening still, and his legacy is still relevant. There are a lot of people who are still inspired by him. I spoke to folks in Suriname, where he is originally from. They are working on a year calendar that is solely dedicated on Jan Mazeliger. And so a lot of stuff happening. I have also been in touch with distant relative of Jan Mazeliger, who lives in the Netherlands, and he published his own family history. So that is also coming within the next couple of weeks. So yeah, exciting stuff. 
Amazing. Okay, so we've got this idea of relevance, lasting. It has lasted uh, throughout a, a century. And it's mm -hmm. also a, uh, you were talking about shoes, it's also an, uh, an invention that he invented for attaching the last to uh, a shoe sole. Right. Is that right? That's correct. I, your book has several uh, diagrams in it that I thought were fascinating, even when I couldn't quite understand how it worked. <laughs> I think I would need to see it in operation to, to get right. the idea. So we've worked with a pun on last, but I also think there's a pun going on with this idea of invention. Of course, he invented the lasting machine, mm -hmm. but also I'm interested in how he is or isn't invented as a persona within uh, your book, right? Because mm -hmm. this is a book where you had to do a lot of archival research. Mm -hmm. And that too has, a, a, you have to create a narrative for a, a life that was, again, in some ways uh, quite openly lived. And in some ways there's, there was a lot of mystery around how he lived, things that were not really known to the public and you had to go in and find out. Can you talk to me a little right. bit about, about that part of it? The narrative that I encountered time and time again is that of the hero the person who uh, was impeccable. And so I'm not so much interested in the invention, but more in the narrative that is created around him. And I didn't buy it for one minute that he was <laughs> impeccable. I wanted to know who is this man? You know, how did he survive? How, what makes him tick? What was he interested in other than uh, shoemaking? And so that was what catapulted me into the research because I wanted to know who is, was he as a human being? You know, he was very content as how a society saw him and mainly white society. That was the, uh, the image of the, uh, the good, hardworking Christian black man. Um, I'm not sure. There was, there was a lot more to him. What was behind this image that he helped creating? I came up with a lot of surprising things about it. I know this is a book that is full of surprises as, as, yes. you know, as well. I thought part of your interest in, in him was because you are originally from Suriname and mm -hmm. so was he, right? Yes. And so, and he was an immigrant to America in the 19th century, uh, a black man or a, a mixed race man uh, who would have been uh, definitely read as black in, uh, mm -hmm. in the 19th century America. I, I keep talking about th this kind of um, dual way he is seen. And you're talking about the, the hero, you know, the great hero, and also as someone who led a, a, a mysterious life, despite mm -hmm. how public some things seem to be. I know that this is the first full length biography of Metzeliger? It is, yes. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is that the research, again, was very challenging. So you have to keep in mind that he was born in Suriname, which is South America. So you have those archives, which are all in Dutch. And so that's a challenge for non-Dutch speaking uh, researchers. Most of the archives then ended up being in the Netherlands. That's where they were kept for a long time. I think a decade ago, they were given back to Suriname. So now they're back where they belong. And then there is his uh, paternal ancestry. His uh, father was of German descent. So you have those records as well, which are in German. And then last but not least, his American life, his immigration to the United States. So those records are in the U.S. You have to be able to cover all that as a researcher. And I think that's the reason why it took so long to finally uh, write a full-length biography about him. 
You know, so this is really a, you know, a, a moment when a historian has to step in and do this. And it mm -hmm. has to be a historian that uh, is willing to travel, that can speak all of the languages possible, mm -hmm. and has to be, as historians must be, tenacious mm -hmm. in their desire to, um, to find things out. How did you first come across him? And what motivated you to, well, do this enormous amount of work uh, for this mm -hmm. biography? Well, to be honest, when I first started, I didn't think it would take me six years, <laughs> the whole process. <laughs> if it's I like had writing known, in general, right? <laughs> <laughs> if I had known that, maybe I would have said, no, thank you. <laughs> so I first heard about him in 1996. I was in the United States at uh, the University of Madison, Wisconsin as an international student. You know, uh, it was during orientation week. And whenever people would ask me where I was from, I would say I'm from the Netherlands because that's where I lived at the time. And most of my life I've had Dutch citizenship. And so for Americans, that was hard to grasp. How can you be black and from the Netherlands and from Europe? And so I got tired of that, you know, explaining of who I, who I was and where I came from. At one point, I decided to say, I'm from Suriname. Not that they knew where that was, but at least, you know, it sounded <laughs> exotic enough to explain where I was from. After a while, I spoke to someone in administration and I mentioned that I was from Suriname. And she said, oh, I know where that is. And I was so surprised. And she said, uh, there is an exhibition, a small exhibition at the library about this inventor from Suriname. And I said, Suriname, an inventor? Never heard of that. And so she forgot his name. And so after our conversation, I went to the library to check it out and see what this was all about. And that's where I saw him for the first time. Uh, and the reason why they had this exhibit is that the uh, US Postal Service had issued a stamp in honor of Mazeliger. So there was a small exhibition dedicated to his work and life in the US. His name sounded strange and had never heard of him. And, but, you know, as someone who was born in the same country, I was proud that I had a fellow countryman in, in the U.S. You know, I finished that year, never thought about him. Twelve years went by. And um, in the meantime, I had moved to Canada. And somehow, I don't know, it was the long and cold winters here that triggered the memory. And some, I don't know what, what initiated that, but I looked him up. And I wondered what the, the whole experience as an immigrant, because that's something in, in addition to being from the same country, we share the immigrant experience. And so I wondered what that experience must have been for him. You know, the cold, um, not being able to speak the language, uh, racism, of course, he would have faced that. You know, I started doing some research online, but I noticed that most of the research was very repetitive. Uh, I noticed that, you know, because the, of the lack of information, people started filling in the blanks with their own fantasy. I said, I want to know more about this man, but I don't know where to start. I contacted an archive in Suriname. They had a little bit about him. He's not as well known there either. Long story short, I ended up in Lynn, Massachusetts, and that's where I found the Lee family letters. And that was also the moment when I decided, oh, so this is not going to be an article as I thought it initially would be. 
but this is going to be more and perhaps it's going to be a book and it turned out to be a book. Yeah, that's always a, a moment in, in a writer's life where you go, I thought it was a, a short project. It's mm -hmm. a much bigger one. Of course, I, I read your book and I also thought what else is out there uh, about it. And I think you've described it very well, that, that he's frequently spoken of, but people seem to know very little about him, despite mm -hmm. the fact that the stamp was issued in his name. And that was yes. kind of a surprise to me, right? That that kind of honor would be bestowed, but people seem mm -hmm. to be satisfied knowing very little about him. I'm glad that, that you gave chase to this idea. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a narrative of a man who represents great change and great challenge to mm -hmm. the country's categorizations at the time, right? And Dennis uh, Karwatka calls him uh, a man in cultural limbo, and you quote uh, Karwatka uh, in your book. I was thinking about this, and I also thought he's in cultural limbo, but he's also a kind of cultural bellwether. He's a, a kind of indicator of the future, of, of where it was going, both in his interest in science and technology, and of course, with the relationships he had with people, uh, including the, you know, the sisters of the, uh, of the Lee family. Can you say more about that, about him as a, as a kind of um, person who was about the future? If you, you look at his life as an inventor, you have to be all about innovation. Uh, nothing is going to be as it is. And progress, I think, was the thing that make, made him tick. He was uh, always reading, always studying, and always thinking one step ahead of the rest of the crowd. My impression of him is that he was someone who was thinking out of the box. And automation, it, it meant that once this machine was up and running, was working and producing shoes, it meant that a lot of people would lose their jobs because all of it was done by hand. And so there was a lot of pushback, a lot of protests, you know, the unions. But, you know, he, he remained calm. And it was not like the, the machine replaced human hands overnight. It took decades before they got to that point. And unfortunately, he didn't had the opportunity to witness this, but he had a, a vision and he stuck with it. Of course, it, it happened in our times as well. Computers have replaced people and, you know, there's always going to be a reaction, but that didn't stop him from pursuing whatever dream he had for the future. Yeah, indeed. Can you read us a little bit from the book? We're talking uh, about the book and I'd like, yeah, hear how you've written some of this. I will read uh, the first page of the introduction, and the title is Searching for Jan Ernst Matzeliger. Jan E. Matzeliger was the inventor of the automated shoe elastic machine. To the wider public, his last name is still as unpronounceable and often as unfamiliar as it was in the 19th century. There's only one portrait of him taken sometime between 1884 and 1886, after he earned the patent for his, for his invention and before his fatal illness. Photograph from the right, Mazeliger, his body slightly turned away from the camera, is a handsome young man in his early 30s with a serious expression on his face. The original image, never retouched, shows dark circles around his eyes. He looks somewhat tired, yet his eyes sparkle and seemed to send out a message of confidence and determination to the world. He's dressed in a shirt with stand-up collars held together by a slightly crooked polka dot bow tie 
Over his shirt, he wears what seems to be a wool jacket done up only at the top. On his lapel is the often mentioned button, presumably with the words, safe with Jesus on it. His curly hair is neatly trimmed and combed to the right with a part on the left. Both hair texture and facial features reveal that he was of mixed ancestry. Everything about this photo contradicts prevailing perceptions of black and colored people held by 19th century North American society. Nothing in it indicates that this man was born in slavery in another country. On the verge of manhood, Mazelica left his native Suriname, formerly known as Dutch Guyana. His journey eventually took him to Lynn, Massachusetts, where he achieved great things as an inventor and forever left his mark on North American history. Thank you. That's great. It's, it's lovely to have that introduction. I love that description of the uh, of the photo that I was looking at while you were mm -hmm. while you were speaking. It's true that there's that that photo really positions him as like a, a like a man of substance, a man who mm -hmm. knew what he was about. Right. Yes. And um, it makes a striking cover for this book as well. So uh, thank you for for featuring that piece. I'm going to uh, rely a little bit on some of the critical theory about history that I have read in, in my uh, scholarly career. And I'm going to paraphrase historian Hayden White, who mm -hmm. says that history isn't what happened. It's what people wrote down and how they wrote it down. Right. So he's very much into a kind of narrative historiography. Personally, I'm going to add to what Dr. White says that it's also how those documents are preserved. Mm -hmm where and by whom and how they're situated as available to other people. So this is how we know history because somebody wrote it down and preserved it. And it's the preservation of those documents that I think we often don't give much thought to, right? Sometimes we think, and when I say we, I mean uh, members of the public who are not historians, mm -hmm. uh, think that all information is just available to anyone. And the internet has contributed to that kind of um, misunderstanding, <laughs> right? So, you know, you were talking about having to go to Lynn, Massachusetts, be there personally and discover right. documents that people hadn't looked at in relationship to uh, Matt Zelliger before. Mm -hmm. I, I want to have a, a little a little spoiler here because it's really it's the first chapter of, of the book or in yeah. the first chapters. The key to your book is Medzeliger's relationship with a, a young man named Percy Lee. Can mm -hmm. you tell us about how you discovered this and what sort of roadblocks you may have encountered before you got there? Yes, I would like to go briefly back to uh, what you were saying earlier. I completely agree with with everything you you said. And it's one of the things we address also in the walking tour, but maybe we can talk about that later, about who gets to decide what is preserved, who decides what local history is. And what we try to offer during the walking tour is other stories in addition to, so we're not trying to replace stories, but offer more stories that also deserve to be told, which must be told actually, to make history more complete and to give us a better, better sense of who we are as a community and as a people. Now, this so, is your uh, Black Presence in Berlin walking tour that correct. you lead uh, throughout Kitchener. Okay, correct. Good. But it doesn't go only for the walking tour, but for history in general. To jump back to, to Percy Lee, 
there have always been rumors that Manzelliger had fathered uh, a child by with a, a white woman. And so I am a naturally curious person. And so I decided to look into that. The earliest record I could find was an interview with longtime Lynn resident. So she was the first who brought that up. But she she got the, the circumstances and you know the names, it was all mixed up and it, it didn't make any sense. And so I started looking into who were the people who surrounded Matzeliger, what was his circle like? In all the information that I found, the, the Lee family kept coming up. And so I decided to look into the Lee family. And so it took me to the Lee women. And then in the 1950s, there was an interview with Percy Lee, who supposedly was the youngest child of the Lee family. It, this took me back to uh, census records. Percy Lee claimed that he was you know, the little brothers the little brother of the Lee family. And the census records show that he was not a child, but a grandchild. I was like, hmm, this is interesting. <laughs> and so I looked up his date of birth and the place where he was born. And this placed him in Lynn, Massachusetts, where Matzelega was at the same time. It made sense that he was the son that people had been talking about. But I didn't have the evidence until I went to Lynn and found the Lee family archive. And that's when I found the letters between this mysterious figure who went by the name of Hyde and between him and, and Percy Lee. And so that's when I knew that Percy Lee was in all likelihood his son. Indeed, because you reproduce the letters in the book and mm -hmm. the tone of those letters are, you know, are very, uh, very affectionate, clearly a, a kind of um, father-like relationship. And, and that was the moment where it, like, it's like the case was blown open, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like this changed the, the narrative that, that you were writing, right? Yes. Is that the moment where you said, this is a book? Yes, that's, uh, you know, once I found the letters, uh, I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to show that side of him as well. So again, not the inventor side, but it's actually a, a very sad story. You know, he could not be close to his son. He, the son had been taken away from Lynn because I have never uh, encountered a picture of him, but it is possible that he looked like him. So by the time he was three years old, he was taken from Lynn and taken to his maternal grandparents in Maine. And that's where he grew up. I'm assuming that he was what we call white passing. So he could have been a, a white person, but still he might have things that, you know, resembled the inventor. And so that's the reason why he was taken away in all likelihood. Indeed. You know, you just mentioned that in many ways, um, Madzaliger's story is very sad. So we have mm -hmm. the, the death at a relatively young age. He was 37, is that right? Yes, yes, that was very tragic, yeah. 37, didn't really get to live long enough to see the legacy of, mm -hmm. the, of the lasting machine. Like he knew that, you know, some people were adopting it, but he, he wasn't going to see its, its real impact. And of course, his child is, is distanced from him. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was interesting, though, that um, the letters 
and the letters that he was writing under the pseudonym of uh, hydrogen, right? Mm -hmm, or hide, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And I and I thought, wow, why the pseudonym? If we if Percy knew who it was, why is this a playful pseudonym? Did the pseudonym was it supposed to actually? hide him is there a speaking of puns right i think so yeah yeah all those things you know that's i i think i, t I talk uh, it's been mind you seven years ago since i wrote this <laughs> but i i think I, I remember you know having possible uh, explanations of where the name hide came from uh but you know you're right their their relationship and i'm, I'm glad i captured it the relationship between them was very playful I think he, if he had had the opportunity to be openly a father to Percy Lee, he would have made a great dad. Yeah, it, it very much seems so. So, um, okay, so those are the the sad components. Um, but when it comes to writing about his untimely death, mm -hmm. um, you make it clear in the second half of the book that you're not interested in indulging these narratives, uh, other narratives of his life that suggest that he was a victim mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. and earlier you said you weren't that interested in him as this amazing hero so we've yeah. got this other narrative uh, going on so how did yeah. you arrive at this juncture that you thought i don't want him to be a hero i don't want him to be a victim i think i do that with all historical figures that i encounter um my master's thesis was about enslaved women in brazil and the title was they weren't uh, heroes but also they were not victims. I do believe that within the boundaries of slavery, they still had agency. I think that is also the case with uh, Madzeliger. I think life is the sum of what happens to you and the choices that you make. And so clearly he made some choices uh, and I'm not here to you know, judge him on the choices that he made, but obviously those choices had consequences. He um, had this need to be closer to, to white people rather than to black people. And if you choose to do that, then, you know, you will end up in spaces where you're not wanted or where you're rejected. And so uh, to, to blame racism for what happened to him and without a doubt, you know, I'm sure he, he had uh, encountered racism, but uh, some of the choices that he made put him in a very vulnerable position. This is a, a kind of a side note about the book, um, but this is also a little bit of a social history of shoes and shoe wearing in the United mm -hmm. States, um, certainly as it relates to industry and commercialism and um, Matt Zelliger's contribution to, mm -hmm. uh, to that. But it also contains like a reminder of something that I think I knew, but in the context of making shoes in uh, in Lee, Massachusetts, I was reminded that uh, enslaved peoples were not allowed to wear shoes and like, uh -huh. to the point of it was illegal. It was not, ju not just inconvenient to uh -huh. give them shoes, but it was illegal and probably illegal in many ways because it was expensive and also I, I thought probably illegal um, to prevent enslaved peoples from running. Yes. Right. Now, I'm not 100% sure if this was the case in the United States as well. I haven't looked into that history, uh, but for sure now, for sure. You know, and uh, it's, it's ironic because I have come across a documentation where a slave owner would provide the enslaved person with a letter that because this person had foot problems, they were allowed to wear shoes. 
So it was something that was a privilege of free people and of white people. And it's ironic that here's this individual who was born in slavery, goes on to another country and then becomes this, you know, inventor who invents a machine that makes shoes for everyone. Yeah, and it was very fitting too, right? Because then the the skill of lasting, and uh, I was very taken by these uh, these statistics that you covered. That it used to be that it would take a laster the better part of uh, a day to complete a pair of shoes, mm-hmm. and the uh, lasting machine made uh, lasted like forty pairs of shoes in a day. And I thought, what? a game changer, mm-hmm. right? And so when we're talking about the commercialization of these shoes, then all of a sudden they are affordable mm-hmm. for everyone. Yeah. They move from being a class marker um, to, you know, again, something that uh, the people can afford. And I love the fact that there's this black owned um, shoe company. Yes. Uh, we started out talking about that. And I thought, wow, that's that's so amazing. Don't, don't you just feel the arm of history reaching forward and touching the contemporary Absolutely. moment? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you have a chance, there is a short clip. And they've used the, the picture that's on the book and they have used artificial intelligence. And so there's this image of him speaking to today's generation who is in the shoe industry. And that just blew my mind. It was just amazing. Like he's blinking, he's speaking. It, it was just amazing. So if you have a chance to look that up. Yeah, no, I really want to see that. Absolutely. <laughs> That's so great. Now, uh, we've been talking about um, that you, uh, as, a, as a historian, you have to be curious, uh-huh. very curious. <laughs> I want to know, uh, uh, because so many people say, you know, I, I'm interested in this subject, but I just, oh, the research, I just, I just couldn't yeah. do it. What's your two best pieces of advice for anyone who wants to embark on this kind of a research project that means uh, archival work, that means needing to, to hang on through, uh, through all kinds of um, things that might get in your way? The first piece of advice if I, that I give to people that are you know, uh, on the verge of starting their own family history research is to start with talking to family members. You know, just uh, simple things, um, ask for the names and go as far back as you can. Oral history, obviously, is is important. Uh, The other thing is start with yourself. A lot of us um, are immigrants. So start with your own history and tell your children. If you don't want to tell it, you just write it down. When did you come to Canada? Who were your parents? Uh, why did you come to Canada? If you still have, you know, the original papers or passports, just keep those things because one day they will be important because someone will come and ask about, you know, where did grandmother come from? Uh, do we know anything about her? And so gather as much oral history and family history as you can. And that's, that will often be the starting point for a lot of people, because a lot of people don't even know the names of their grandparents. Something simple like that. The other thing is be prepared to be frustrated. (laughs) Um, Because for a lot of us immigrants, Black people, our history is fragmented. And we've seen this in the book, uh, because we're migrant people, our you know, we haven't always had the chance to bring our history with us. And by, by that, I mean the uh, primary uh, resources. 
there's not a lot. Like if you go here in, in, in the local archives, chances are you won't find anything about your family, at least not yet. There might be some information on, you know, uh, platforms like uh, ancestry.com or family search. Uh, and the, the second piece of advice is to enter that information in, like turn your family information over to those platforms so that you, at least you have a family tree. The more of us who do this, the bigger the tree will grow and it will connect. So you might, you know, meet other relatives that are spread all over the world. You know, and especially with the, uh, the DNA testing that they're doing these days, don't be surprised if you're, you know, contacted by a distant relative and says, oh, I see here that we originate from the same person. So again, it is difficult research. It is often, it will lead to frustration, but don't give up. It is worth it. The work that I'm doing is not for myself, but for others now, living now, but also future generations. Yeah, keeping that idea of a legacy in mind, I think, is is important mm -hmm. that you're not necessarily writing uh, to be uh, read right now, although that's also nice, but there's, yes. a, there's a much larger arc uh, to it. You're listening to Watershed Riders on Midtown Radio KW. You can find this and all our episodes on SoundCloud and on Spotify. If you want to know more about the authors featured on Watershed Riders, we've got you covered. Visit our website at watershedriders.ca. So I want to talk a little bit about your current work uh, in which you're kind of writing in community. And you mentioned the stroll walking tours uh, mm -hmm. a little earlier. And I want to dive into how the tour that uh, you have designed or co-designed with uh, Juanita Metzger, who runs Stroll Walking Tours. And it's called Black Presence in Berlin. And of course, for mm -hmm. our listeners, I'll remind you that Kitchener used to be called uh, Berlin. And so you are talking about a, a 19th century presence, right? Now, tell me how that came about and how it's this collaborative project came to be. So I've been interested from the beginning since I, I came here in 2007. And, uh, you know, it's a habit. Wherever I go, I ask, you know, are there any Black people here? Uh, what is their, their story, their background? When did they first arrive here? And so um, I was always told, oh, not until the 1960s, which, of course, is, is uh, not true. We have to get away from that idea that Black presence in, in this region is, you know, a recent phenomenon. It is not. The uh, first Black person that is recorded uh, in history books uh, arrived here in 1806. Again, we need to steer away from that narrative. I've been doing research on my own, just as a, as a hobby. My kids always joke that mom likes to look for dead people. <laughs> <laughs> And so I've always, I've always done that. Somehow I was introduced to Juanita, an acquaintance, a mutual acquaintance, and uh, she was thinking of adding a Black history walking tour to her business. And so that was a, a good match and started uh, looking into who the, uh, the Black residents were, the early Black settlers in the 19th century. And uh, yeah, from, from there on, I, I did most of the, the research and um, we had 
weekly or bi-weekly meetings where we would uh, update each other on how it was going. After the research was finished, I wrote the, uh, the script or the narratives of uh, for each of the individuals that we had uh, found. And together we uh, developed the, the route because she had more experience with that, uh, what made sense, what didn't work. And then we did the test walks. Fast forward, we launched the walk in 2022, in February, during Black History Month. And you're continuing to give these walks, right? Yes, that's uh, somehow it's a misunderstanding. A lot of people think that it was something that was only for that uh, particular year, but it is ongoing. We had a, a winter break this year, uh, but we're starting again next week. Oh, excellent. So um, if people want to know more, they can they can actually come and take this tour. Absolutely. <laughs> excellent. So that's Stroll Walking Tours Black Presence in Berlin. Now, I know you've also been involved in planning uh, museum exhibits uh, about Black mm -hmm. Presence in, in the county and beyond. What has that experience been like? The exhibition will be um, solely about Levi Carroll who was one of the early Black residents who's featured on the walking tour. But as I kept finding more information, I felt that this was going beyond the walking tour. And so I think he needs his own exhibition. And so I applied for a grant, which I got, and I'm just starting the, the research. Uh, I have uh, quite a bit of his life here in, in uh, Kitchener, formerly Berlin, but it's mostly about his, his early years in Berlin, but I also go back to Maryland. And that, that part is challenging because this is someone who left life in captivity and with the help of the Underground Railroad made his way to Canada. Because, you know, it is about slavery, it is about the Underground Railroad, I feel that this is not only Black history, it is Canadian history. And certainly if we look at where he lived in Kitchener, he lived right next to KCI High School and um, he owned land in that area. So Levi Carroll was the first Black landowner ever in, in Kitchener. So that story needs to be told. We've been talking about who owns land and, you know, factory in the... Uh, indigenous history in this, this area, but we've also neglected looking into Black land ownership in this area. And so that is something that I would also like to shed some light on during this exhibition. But it is mostly about his active years in Kitchener, because I feel like the emphasis, the focus on Levi Carroll has been limited to the schoolhouse Levi Carroll lived in a schoolhouse that was built in 1820 by Abraham Earp and later turned into the residence of the Carroll family. The schoolhouse still exists and is now in Waterloo Park and it is restored as a schoolhouse. It is sitting in the park and it's opening three days a year during the summer. But I don't think a lot of people realize that this schoolhouse is connected to, to Levi Carroll. During his life, Levi Carroll was quite famous in this community. A lot of people knew him. Um, he was famous beyond Kitchener. For some reason, the, the emphasis is, um, like I said, on the schoolhouse, but also on the last two years of his life. He 
ended up in the Waterloo County House of Industry and Refuge. And that had to do with extreme poverty, which he found himself uh, in, and uh, he had to be admitted there. And that's where he also died. Again, a, a tragic story, a uh, sad story, but in my opinion, his life was much more than the last two years of his life. And so there needs to be a shift in the narrative. And that's where the exhibition will come in. You say that he was famous, uh, well-known in Berlin and beyond at that time. Mm -hmm. And for, for what reason? Because he was uh, formerly enslaved. You know, somehow the legend uh, was that he was over 100 years old by the time he died. But he wasn't. He was a bit younger than that. He was in his 90s. I have found two obituaries, uh, in, and, and you know, others in the community have also written about him. But like I said, the emphasis is on things that I think, how, how should I frame this? His life was much more than that. And that story also needs to be, needs to be told. How did he make a living? He had various uh, professions. If we look at the various um, uh, census records, he was a gardener. Uh, that was also something interesting because uh, we feel that he was not from around here. It, uh, mm. Some people in the community describe it as it looked like a southern plantation. And so people would come and watch well, while he was, was gardening. Another census record says that he was a shingle maker. So he had several professions during his time here uh, in Kitchener. Hearing both of those things makes me think that he would be both very popular and, and have lots in common with many of the, the Mennonite settlers here, right? Yes, These yeah. were things that, are, that were very much valued by, by the Mennonite settlers. And, um, and yeah, and I, I, can, I can see him being well known for his, uh, for his talents, right? Yes, absolutely. But it's, it's more the, uh, the fascination with the fact that he escaped and then came, came to this region and... Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people were fascinated by, by his story at the time. And, you know, with a lot of historical figures, it's, it goes for Madzeliger, but also for Levi Carroll. There's a moment in time uh, where they're almost forgotten. And yeah. then someone comes back and, and, and finds the narrative and brings it back. And people start paying attention again. It, it goes in waves sometimes. The story with Madzeliger is that for a long time, he had been forgotten. Like the first decades after his death, people had just forgotten him until someone, his grave was, was hard to find. Someone decided that he needed a headstone and a monument. And that's when things started picking up again. Like I said, today there's a factory named after him. You know, the same goes for, for Levi Carroll. Every Black History Month, someone will write about him or refer to his, uh, his uh, presence in this community. But Again, what, what do we actually know about this man uh, in addition to him ending up in the, uh, the House of Industry and Refuge? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's always curious that people know about the end of people's lives, but they're not, they're not that curious mm -hmm. about what happens before. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, yes. we, we all live lives that are complex. We make mistakes. Sometimes we're heroes. And, and, yeah, and that's a whole life, which is what you're, yeah. you're trying to uncover. You know, um, I, we didn't talk about this with uh, Metzeliger, but I was very fascinated to learn of the mishandling of his estate 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I think about speaking of, you know, what legal records are, are, are kept. Right. Mm-hmm. There, of course, is a legal rec- a record uh, that someone was named as an executor. But mm-hmm. what a way to vanish from from records yeah. is to have your your estate mishandled. Right. Absolutely. And I thought deeply ironic um, that he, Mad Selger, was so uh, careful about his choice or appeared to be so careful about his choice. Yeah. And then the man in charge um, bungled it, right? Yes. Yeah. So if, you know, historically we're relying on birth records, death records, Uh wills, all these kind of, all this kind of um, heavily documented events, Uh right? And that must be in many ways, like kind of gold to a historian. And then to find that those are besmirched in some ways is, Uh must be very frustrating. It is. Yes. And, uh, Right now, I'm struggling a bit with uh, Levi Carroll. I don't know. He he mentioned that he was born in Maryland, but Maryland, you know, it was big. So I'm trying to determine which county it was. And this is a man who left before the abolition of slavery. And he mentioned in an interview who his, his enslavers were. But that, again, is not enough information. And so, again, I'm struggling a little bit at this point, but I'm confident that I I will resolve this uh, <laughs> this issue because I really want to know what his life was like. Uh, you know, I can surmise from the fact that he left his life in captivity. But what did he do? Where did his interest in gardening come from? All that kind of information. Are there maybe family members who escaped after him? Uh, who, who stayed behind and whatever happened to those people? Those are all questions, you know, some of them may not be answered, but I, I still have to ask them. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Just to get um, a sense of who he was. You're listening to Watershed Riders on Midtown Radio KW. As we finalize season three, all 29 episodes featuring local authors in the Waterloo region can be found on our Watershed Riders website. It's a platform where local writers have increased visibility and impact. We are dedicated to hearing and disseminating their voices about what they have to say regarding our region, our country, our cultures, and our times. I'm going to ask you to read again from the book. Uh So you gave us an introduction to uh, Mad Seliger. And yeah, what else would you read about him if you wanted us to to walk away with, uh, with knowledge of... Yeah, of who he was. We've been all been talking about the, the whole person, the, the real mm-hmm. story. As I mentioned, the thing I share with Metzaliger is not only a country of birth, but also the immigrant experience. And I can relate to both. And so for a lot of immigrants, when you first get to a new country, you're so caught up in catching up with the new culture, the new way of life, that you almost forget where you come from. For a lot of immigrants, once they get older, towards the end of their lives, they start thinking about the place where they originate from. He didn't get to be that old, but he did come to the end of his life. And the piece I'm going to read is his final days, uh, the the final year of his life, and um, how he spent that. It is about what Percy remembers about that time. So Percy recalled, the last time I saw him, was I think a year before he died. He was then at work on a large and very handsome landscape picture in natural colors of some place in Dutch Guyana, South America. It would have been interesting to know more details about this final work of art, but unfortunately it has disappeared. 
The topic shows that Madzeliger still thought about his native land, even though it appears that his strategy had been to divorce himself from his Surinamese beginnings. In common with other immigrants, the inventor's first year in America were tumultuous and all about survival. There had been little time to dwell on the past. When he became ill, however, that likely changed and memories could no longer be suppressed. Whatever his feelings were regarding his native country, his painting possibly brought closure to that episode of his life. His memories of Dutch Guyana were stored in his head, and he apparently felt that it was important to share this with his offspring. After all, it was partially their heritage as well. Whether it had been obvious to Percy or not, that visit to Lynn was to be his farewell to his father. Percy dates this visit to a year before Madzeliger's death. And at the time, his father was already giving his things away. To Percy, he mentioned an older bureau drawer in Anna's basement on 17 South Street Court. It was full of odds and ends and miscellaneous small pieces of junk. When I called to see him, he said that there might be some things there that I would like to have. And if there was, it was for her to give them to me. In the collection, I found a vise, a wrench, a cold chisel, and old pinchers used in lasting shoes by hand. Despite his frail physique, the inventor moved from Albany Street to his own house on 25 Light Street in 1889. The Durgans agreed to move in with him, and now he became their landlord. Home ownership was restricted to a few blacks in Lynn, and the inventor was likely one of the first people of color, if not the first, to own a house on Light Street. Once again, he had overcome the color line, but this time it was bittersweet, for he could not enjoy his status as a homeowner for long. Nevertheless, he seemed proud of what he had achieved in life. Among Mezeliger's artifacts in Percy's possession, was a calling card with the text, Jan E. Madzeliger, 25 Light Street, Lynn, Massachusetts. You know, I'm glad you chose that passage because I remember thinking of that drawer full of small things that are, you know, perhaps not what we would think of as a legacy, but it becomes a legacy yes. when they're chosen for a child uh, to mm -hmm. remember his, his father, um, you know, acknowledged or, or not acknowledged. And I loved that idea of his... Uh, female relative, you know, choosing from that. And of course, that, that he remembered it and, and told it to someone later. So that goes back uh -huh. to that, what gets documented and how and why, right? Right. Because you've been working on Black lives uh, locally, and of course, um, elsewhere and, and writing them down, you uh, must have a job managing the surprise that your work is sometimes met with. What's your strategy for, for dealing with that surprise <laughs> with people saying, what? A Black presence in Berlin before 1960? These stories always have been here. They just needed to be uncovered. And the question is, why did it take so long? Why have these stories been lost, forgotten, suppressed, whatever you want to call it? And I, as I mentioned earlier, I say to people who come to the walking tour, you know, it, it's a sort of homework I give people. Think about these questions and think about 
how come that some stories are well-preserved, kept for the generations that will come after us, and some stories are forgotten? You know, there, there must be some agenda there of why these stories are lost. And the thing that I came to realize in the, in the past year as I was doing the local history is that there seems to be some people think in terms of competition. If we can prove that we were the first ones here, that gives us more rights, more privilege. And that's not how it works. We all live on stolen lands, you know, and it's not about who got here first. It's about all these stories that made us into the people that we are today. Again, all these stories need to be told in addition to the existing stories. And we need to steer away from the German and Pennsylvania Mennonite history as the only narrative that covers the history of, of this area by inviting people to, to think more about, you know, how this whole situation came to be. I'm hoping to raise awareness because that's the sole purpose of this whole walking tour to raise awareness and also to educate, to engage people in local history. Unfortunately, local history is not taught in schools. You know, I, I know from my kids that they spend six weeks talking about uh, World War I. And I'm not saying that that is not relevant history, but what's the point if you talk about that, but you don't know why Weber Street was named Weber Street, who was it named after? Something has to change in the current uh, curriculum that students know about their local history. And that includes other groups in the community. If people want to read your book about Jan Ernst, mm -hmm. Seliger, A Lasting Invention, where can they get it? So the book was self-published. It is at this point, uh, if you go to my website, PeggyPlatt.com. There is a button there. And if you click that button, it will take you to uh, the page where you can order the book. Excellent. I encourage everyone to do that. It's a fascinating read about the 19th century, uh, about a kind of self-invention by a, by a very enterprising person. And of course, about the journey to um, finding out more about him. Peggy, I want to thank you for being on Watershed Writers today. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and I have to come on a stroll walking tour soon now that the weather's Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it was a pleasure for me to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Watershed Writers with our guest, historian and biographer Peggy Plett. For more information about Peggy's walking tour, Black Presence in Berlin, please visit Stroll Walking Tours at strollwalkingtours.com. Our interviews are filled to the brim with local literary talk so smart and thought-provoking you will want us to live in your neighborhood. And if you live in the Grand River watershed, we do. And if you live elsewhere, the internet brings this content to you absolutely free. Watershed Writers comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio, and if you miss an episode or want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website at watershedwriters.ca. Visit your local independent bookstores 
for all of our author picks. That's Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, The Bookshelf in Guelph, and The Rookery Bookstore in Cambridge, or wherever fine books are sold. We are produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and with the Waterloo Public Library. Francis Roberts Riley is our producer, John Roscoe is our technical director, and I am the voice in your ear, Dr. Tannis MacDonald, essayist, professor, poet, free-range literary animal. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again to listen local and think global. Oh.